Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 28. You don't know Jack. Hey everyone, it's David here. Today's episode is going to be rather unusual. Because you see, over the last couple of weeks, I've been a guest on a couple of different podcasts. I was on the Council of Trent with Trent Horn, and I was also on the Classical Theism podcast with John DeRosa. And on both of these podcasts, I was talking about C.S. Lewis, and I needed to give their listeners a little bit of a background, a little bit of a summary of Lewis's life in order to talk about his apologetic and theological works. And in particular, after I gave that summary, John DeRosa on the Classical Theism podcast said that he thought that was really good and that we should release an episode simply giving a summary of Lewis's life. So... Last week, I wrote a couple of blog posts on RestlessPilgrim.net outlining Lewis's life, and I thought today's episode would simply be me reading those articles. So this can provide a really great introductory episode to anybody wanting to know more about our podcast and C.S. Lewis in particular. I hope you enjoy. C.S. Lewis was a man who left an indelible mark on the 20th century. However, despite being such an influential figure, Many people today only know him for his Chronicles of Narnia, and almost next to nothing about the man himself. Therefore, I would like to introduce you more fully to the man behind the lion, and the author behind the works which have deeply shaped modern Christianity and apologetics. He wasn't English. Often I've found people assume that C.S. Lewis was English, particularly if they've listened to one of the few remaining audio recordings of him. Lewis was, in fact, born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, in 1898. He was, however, educated in England and lived in Oxford for most of his adult life. He had several names. He was baptised Clive Staples Lewis, but that wasn't what his friends called him. When Lewis was about four, his dog, Jaxie, died. And from then onwards, he stubbornly refused to respond to any other name, although it was eventually shortened to Jack. This is why the name of our podcast is Pints with Jack. The Jack in question here is C.S. Lewis himself. Jack experienced tragedy as a child. Lewis's mother died of cancer when he was 10. He writes about it movingly in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, describing it as follows. All settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable, disappeared from my life. The young Jack was soon afterwards sent to a boarding school in England, He disliked England immediately, and hated most of his schooling. So much so that in his autobiography, he names one of the schools he attended after one of the most notorious World War II concentration camps, Belsen. Fittingly enough, the headmaster of that school would later be committed to an asylum. Lewis wasn't always a Christian. Most people who have heard of Lewis will know that he was a famous Christian of his generation. However, he wasn't a Christian all of his life. He was raised in the Church of Ireland, but became an atheist as a teenager. And there were several reasons for this. Lewis loved the old pagan myths, particularly those of the Norse. As he received his education in classics, he was told that paganism was all false, whereas Christianity was entirely true. Not only did this assessment seem wrong to the young Lewis, but because of the parallels that he saw between the two, he assumed that both paganism and Christianity were simply fanciful stories. Like many who embraced atheism, the problem of pain and suffering also loomed large in Jack's mind. 
He couldn't reconcile a good God with the world he saw around him or with the pain that he himself had endured in his life. He would often quote the Epicurean poet Lucretius, who wrote, Had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. He was a war veteran. Jack fought in World War I. In fact, he arrived at the front line on his 19th birthday. After being wounded in combat about a year later, he returned home. During his training, he met a young man named Paddy Moore. The two had agreed that if one of them died, that the other would look after his family. Unfortunately, Paddy didn't return from the trenches. Lewis was true to his word, taking care and living with both Paddy's mother, Janie, and Paddy's sister, Maureen, for the rest of his life. Jack was really, really clever. Upon returning to Oxford after the war, Lewis excelled in his studies, earning multiple degrees. He got a first in Greek and Latin literature, known as moderations, as well as philosophy and ancient history, this is called greats, and finally a first in English. It's clear that Lewis was very intelligent, particularly when it came to language. But he was unfortunately terrible at mathematics. In fact, his inability with numbers nearly barred him from entrance to Oxford. Fortunately, upon returning from the war, his military service granted him a dispensation from those exams. He became a theist before becoming a Christian. Over time, Lewis started to become discontented with the imaginative and explanatory power of atheism. He had originally embraced atheism in part because of the cruel and unjust nature of the universe. However, as he would later argue in Mere Christianity, how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Jack moved through a number of philosophical evolutions before he finally accepted the inevitable. In his autobiography, he writes, You must picture me alone in my room, night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. I eventually gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. He was not yet a Christian, but the seeds had already been sown. He really loved his friends. Contrary to some depictions of Lewis, he was not an isolated, stoic academic. He loved good beer and good conversation. He really loved his friends, and they would play a huge role in his life, particularly J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. In fact, Tolkien fans owe a great debt of gratitude to Lewis, as he was for a long time the only audience for those works, and he did much to encourage Tolkien to finish them and get them published. Unfortunately, Tolkien disliked much of Lewis's work, even The Screwtape Letters, a book which Lewis dedicated to him. Many other names could be added to the list of Lewis's close friends, such as Hugo Dyson, Charles Williams, and Owen Barfield. All of these men shared a love of literature, and in The Four Loves, Lewis would write that Friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, What, you two? I thought I was the only one. Later, these men would come together to form The Inklings, a literary discussion group where they would debate ideas and where they would read their work to each other. 
They would meet on Tuesday mornings in their favourite pub, the Eagle and Child, affectionately known to the locals as the Burden Baby. But they would also meet on Thursday nights in Lewis's rooms at Magdalen College, where they'd have a drink and a smoke. Speaking of smoking, Lewis really loved tobacco. I recently came across a biography of Lewis, which estimated that he smoked sixty cigarettes a day. Now, since I am marginally better at mathematics than Lewis, I sat down and worked out that, assuming he was awake for fourteen hours a day, and that it takes approximately five minutes to smoke a cigarette, that he spent a third of his waking life smoking. Last year, I visited Lewis's home, and although they had repainted the walls of the living room, they left the ceiling untouched. So you could see how it was thoroughly stained by nicotine. His friends helped bring him to Christ. After converting to theism, Lewis began to suspect that Christianity might, in fact, be true. However, it was after a long late-night conversation with Tolkien and Dyson that the last major obstacle was removed. Lewis had regarded Christianity as a myth, like any of the other pagan myths: lies breathed through silver. Emotionally moving, but ultimately false. Over the course of their conversation, Tolkien and Dyson helped Lewis see that Christianity was the true myth. For centuries before Christianity, man's myths had intuited a dying and rising God. However, in Jesus of Nazareth, that myth became fact. Lewis addressed the nation during World War Two. After the success of his book, The Problem of Pain. Lewis was invited by the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, to speak on the radio to the nation during World War Two. These radio addresses later became the basis for one of Lewis's best-known books, *Mere Christianity*. As well as arguing for the existence of God, he used these broadcasts to defend the basic tenets of Christianity, which are held across all Christian denominations. He wrote many books across many different genres. Mere Christianity was just one of the thirty or so books that Jack wrote. What is particularly amazing about this vast literary output, even aside from the fact that he wrote every line with a dip pen, is that his works are of many different literary styles. Lewis produced apologetics, fairy tales, science fiction, essays, autobiography, poetry, and anthologies, as well as his academic work in literary criticism. In fact, you might say he was a Jack of all genres. All these successful books earned Lewis considerable wealth, but he gave away about two thirds of his income. He did this anonymously through the Agape Fund, which he established. There's more to Narnia than you might think. Probably Lewis's most well-known works are the Chronicles of Narnia. Many of these have received TV and movie adaptations, and these books were read to me as a child. And while the Narnia stories seem to me somehow familiar, I didn't fully grasp the Christian nature of these books until much later. However, Lewis was very quick to argue that Narnia wasn't simply Christian allegory. Instead, he called it an imaginative supposal. He said, "Suppose there were a Narnian world, and it, like ours, needed redemption. What kind of incarnation and passion might Christ be supposed to undergo there?" Lewis understood the power of storytelling, and its ability to smuggle ideas past our watchful dragons of prejudice. Stories allow us to encounter ideas afresh and with renewed potency. He had been affected by this himself many years before when he read George MacDonald's Fantasties, 
which he described as baptizing his imagination. However, there are even more layers to the Chronicles of Narnia. About ten years ago, Dr. Michael Ward, a convert to Catholicism and a priest in the newly formed Anglican Ordinariate, published a book, Planet Narnia, which argued convincingly that Lewis had based the Chronicles of Narnia upon the medieval cosmos. Each of these books corresponded with one of the seven heavens and planets. For example, Prince Caspian is associated with the planet Mars, which is, in turn, associated with war and trees, motifs which we find interlaced throughout that book. He was a pen friend to many. Not only was Lewis a man of letters, he was also a prolific letter writer. For example, he regularly corresponded with his Irish childhood friend, Arthur Greaves, for over half a decade. With Lewis's celebrity came many more letters sent to him by adults as well as children. Jack took this responsibility very seriously and spent several hours a day writing responses to the avalanche of fan mail. There's even an adorable letter from a mother whose child was worried that he loved Aslan more than Jesus. He was snubbed at Oxford, but recognised by Cambridge. Despite his acclaim and popularity as a lecturer, Lewis was many times overlooked for promotion at Oxford University. The commonly accepted reason for this was that he wrote and spoke openly about his Christianity. Many felt it unbecoming of a man in his position, particularly one who didn't even belong to the theology faculty. Fortunately, Cambridge University created a position specifically for Lewis, which, after some persistent pestering, he eventually accepted. This wasn't the only prize that he was invited to accept. Lewis was offered a CBE, Commander of the British Empire, by Prime Minister Winston Churchill in 1951, but Lewis declined it, saying that he feared it might politicise his work, his apostolate. He wasn't Catholic, but often sounded like one. Many Catholics are surprised to discover that Lewis wasn't actually Catholic himself. This is understandable when one looks at Lewis's beliefs. For example, he wrote about the sacraments, spoke highly of the Blessed Sacrament, he believed in purgatory and praying for the dead, and regularly went to auricular confession to an Anglican priest. Although he tried to avoid talking about his opposition to Catholicism, when pressed, he cited the authority of the Pope and the veneration of the Virgin Mary as his chief complaints. However, his Catholic friend Tolkien blamed what he called Lewis's ulterior motive, suggesting that the deep-seated distrust of Catholics, which he had been taught as a boy in Ireland, never entirely left him. Lewis himself admits to this kind of childhood indoctrination when he recounts his first meeting Tolkien. At the first coming into the world, I had been implicitly warned never to trust a papist, and at my first coming into the English faculty, explicitly never to trust a philologist. Tolkien was both. Despite Jack's resistance to embracing Catholicism, he is very much loved by many Catholics. Both Pope St. John Paul II and Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI were very familiar with his work and spoke of it. Not only that, but many people credit Lewis, at least in part, with their conversion to Catholicism. This list of people includes those such as Dr. Peter Kreeft, Father Dwight Longenecker, Thomas Howard, as well as Lewis's own secretary, Walter Hooper. He lived most of his life as a bachelor, but married late in life. Lewis had lived most of his life as a bachelor. However, among the many letters he received from fans, 
One was from an American poet and writer named Joy Gresham. The two quickly developed a firm friendship. Joy visited England and eventually moved there with her two sons. When it seemed that the British government was going to force her to leave the country, Lewis offered her a civil marriage so that she and her children could legally stay in England. Unfortunately, shortly after they had obtained a civil marriage certificate, Joy was diagnosed with cancer. She was not expected to live long. Suddenly faced with the possibility of losing her, Jack realised his deeper feelings for his friend. They were married at her hospital bed by one of Jack's friends, who was an Anglican priest. Afterwards, the clergyman prayed and laid hands on Joy. To everyone's great joy, she was granted a remission, which lasted for four years, before the cancer returned. Heartbroken by her death, Lewis chronicled his mourning in his moving book, A Grief Observed. He is probably one of the most misquoted men on the internet. As we all know, Abraham Lincoln warned us not to believe all the quotations we see on the internet. This is particularly true of Lewis, who seems to have his name attached to many quotations which he never actually said. In fact, when I was in Oxford a few weeks ago, while looking at the various Inklings-themed walking tours, I found one which cost a whopping $335, but which, even aside from the numerous spelling mistakes on the website, included this quotation attributed to C.S. Lewis. You are never too old to set another goal or to dream a new dream. Unfortunately, he never said it. And I find that people on the internet typically don't appreciate it when I point out such things. I'd recommend that if anyone would like to verify a C.S. Lewis quotation, that they look it up in William O'Flaherty's book, The Misquotable C.S. Lewis. His death was overshadowed. Lewis died in his bed on November 22, 1963, at the age of 64. This was the same day on which Aldous Huxley died, and the same day on which President John F. Kennedy was killed. As such, Lewis's death was largely overlooked as JFK's assassination dominated the news that day and in the subsequent weeks. Jack's funeral was small, and his brother, Warney, who had always struggled with alcoholism, wasn't even there, instead finding comfort at the bottom of a bottle of whiskey. He won most arguments, except one. Lewis's secretary, Walter Hooper, likes to say that he lost every argument he ever had with Jack. Except one. You see, Lewis was convinced that nobody would continue reading his books following his death, whereas Hooper said that he was certain that their popularity would continue. Not only would Hooper be vindicated by history, he would also have a hand in ensuring that his friend's legacy would endure. In the years following Lewis's death, Hooper released a number of new works, previously unpublished, including several volumes of Jack's letters. However, Hooper demanded that, with each new book he gave to the publishers, that they re-release two of Jack's older works, thus keeping his books continually in print. Today, Lewis's popularity is greater than ever. His books continue to sell in large numbers, and Netflix recently purchased the rights to The Chronicles of Narnia. Six years ago, on the 50th anniversary of Jack's death, he was officially recognised at Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey as one of the great British writers. The Episcopal Church have even honoured him with a collect in their liturgical calendar. O God of searing truth and surpassing beauty, we give thee thanks for Clive Staples Lewis, whose sanctified imagination lighteth fires of faith in young and old alike. Surprise us also with thy joy, 
and draw us into that new and abundant life which is ours in Christ Jesus, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, I hope you all enjoyed that little summary of Lewis's life. Uh, before I go, I wanted to thank everybody who has been rating us and writing reviews for us on iTunes. Some of you have even been so creative as to write your reviews as haikus. Thank you so much. <laughs> but please come back next week when I'm going to be interviewing another scholar, and we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. <laughs>